What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm John Ford in for Kelly Evans. Here is what's ahead. What a difference a day makes again after yesterday's late session sell-off. Stocks are higher right now and in all that volatility, should you wait for the smoke to clear or is it a good time to go bargain hunting? Plus, the great re-evaluation. Job applicants taking their time to figure out what they want in a new position. We have a look at where they're applying, what jobs they're applying for, and what all that might tell us about tomorrow's big jobs report. And the mortgage bailout is ending. We're going to look at what that could mean for the winter housing market. But we begin, of course, as always, with today's markets with Dom. You got the numbers. Mixed in the beginning, but now decidedly in the green, John. That's what we got right now. And the reason why there's been some buying activity in these names is because from an index perspective, the Dow Jones Industrial Average during yesterday's sell-off went below a technical level that some traders watch the longer-term 200-day average price of the Dow Jones. It popped below there, and it's bouncing pretty big today, up about 600-some points near the highs of the session. The S&P 500 went below its 50-day average price. And just for reference there, that's 45 43. That's the level that it went below and it kind of bounced up above there right now. You can see 45.77 the last trade there, up 1.5%. And the NASDAQ is the laggard right now, up only about 100 points, 15,352 the last trade there. One place to keep an eye on the interest rate complex overall. The reason why the Fed is in a very difficult spot right now is because it's fighting possibly slower economic growth ahead. And then having to fight inflation at the same time, it's not a very easy spot to be in. But if you take a look at the difference between short and long-term Treasury yields, right now at about 83, 84 basis points, we're at the lowest point almost all year long. That flattening, so-called, of the yield curve may be something that a lot of traders are watching. Watch those bank stocks as well there. With regard to some of the laggards in today's trade, as everything is kind of moving up to the upside, we are seeing a rotation out of some of the names that have been hot as of late, namely semiconductors, Lamb Research, Micron, Applied Materials, KLA Corporation, all among the underperformers in the S&P right now. And the Vanek Vector Semiconductor ETF right now, you can see just about flat on the day. So watch those. And then the stock of the day, Dollar General, an underperformer. It came out with earnings that were better than expected this morning. However, it does come out with some interesting news. It's going to get into a line of business for higher-end bargain stores. Those that target items $5 or less, Pop Shelf is the name of it. They want 1,000 stores over the course of the next few years. Dollar General shares down about 2.5% right now. So, again, the value trade there, inflation fighting, part of that whole narrative around dollar stores, it's going to try to go upscale here. John, I'll send things back over to you. Upscale to $5. They're going to yes. have to change their name to $5 General. Everybody's changing their names these days. It's kind of like five below, but not. Right? <laughs> Thanks, Dom. You got it. Stocks rebounding from yesterday's sell-off despite ongoing concerns about the new COVID variant. My next guest's say they see opportunities, but they're waiting for the smoke to clear before jumping into the market. Joining me now are Bob Pavlik, Senior Portfolio Manager at Dakota Wealth Management, and Paul Meeks, Portfolio Manager at Independent Solutions Wealth Management. Guys, good afternoon. Bob, first with you, uh, I mean, the, the variant seems to perhaps not, at least we don't, we don't have enough information on what this uh, Omicron variant is doing yet, but even if it's not so bad, should we take this market action 
as perhaps a, a sign of what could come as far as revaluing certain stocks? I, I, I don't think that the Omicron is going to be as big of an issue as potentially closing down the economy was last year or in, in 2020. So if you look at it from sort of that perspective, it's just another issue that you have to work through, just like we work through the, the Delta variant. And I think as we move forward, the issues are going to be more surrounding the Federal Reserve. And if they're actually moving the goalposts on us, speeding up the tapering, maybe uh, delivering more interest rate increases than we were initially expected, that's what's going to cause stocks to reprice. Next year is going to be a good year, but it's going to be a difficult environment to start off with. People are going to be a little bit confused as to where to put their money. And then I think as we move throughout the year, we sort of get a, an interest rate increase under our belt. And we realize that the Fed's not going to be able to move on interest rates as much as they had hoped for. Then I think you start to see some some pretty good gains and you probably see the low single or low double digit uh, returns for next year. Hmm. OK. OK. Now, Paul Meeks, uh, I see some of these names that you like within the triple Qs, uh, Broadcom, NVIDIA, Alphabet um, in particular. I mean, Qualcomm, too. Some of those names have been up quite a bit. I wonder if you have any thoughts about what's happened to growth stocks, particularly some growth stocks, over the past uh, couple weeks. I'm thinking C3AI, which had a beaten raise, but is getting clobbered today. Elastic, another cloud-related name, had some good results. We got the CEO later this hour, but, but also down significantly. Uh, how do you factor in those kinds of moves, where you see bargains, or, or what you're staying away from? I've been covering the tech sector for a very long time, as you know, and of course, I'm looking for sustainable, durable models. The problem with some of the particularly new age companies, the ones that came to the market in the last couple of years, some of the you, that you've mentioned, they become so expensive. And the uh, analysts and the, that cover them and the portfolio managers that own them are you know, requiring a diet of greater and greater growth and higher profitability. And I think some of these companies were really benefited from uh, COVID. And now they're starting to see still pretty rapid growth, but a, a growth deceleration. And that is a suicide mission for uh, some of these very highly priced stocks. So I like the ones that still have good fundamentals, good growth prospects, but they're not uh, so egregiously valued. Okay. And Bob, uh, I, I guess a stock in tech that might fit that mold for you is Salesforce, but you also like uh, consumer discretionary names like Nike, right? Yeah, I, I think for somebody looking to build a sort of a core portfolio, you have to look to sort of the market leaders. You know, something like Nike, Chevron, Morgan Stanley, these are definitely market leaders that you're probably not going to get hit too hard with if the market continues to per pull back a little bit. But if you're looking to add a little bit of alpha to your portfolio, you have to look outside the box. Salesforce is a, is a leader in what they do, and they reported a very good quarter. It got hit hard. So here's an opportunity to add some alpha to that core portfolio, get a little more, you know, more potential return in there. Uh, Paul, how much do you buy into narratives like uh, the metaverse, which I'm kind of cynical on? I think uh, th there's a lot of stuff is being put together in there that doesn't necessarily belong together. But I, I mean, Broadcom, NVIDIA, Qualcomm certainly play into that. Google has some uh, game streaming stuff that, that certainly fits uh, and some other technologies as well. How do you decide what actually makes sense in a narrative like that? And are you playing it that way? 
So I do think that the metaverse has become uh, too broad, but I do believe that the kernel of the metaverse, you know, the stuff that's really important is accelerating uh, computing and artificial intelligence and however you wrap that and what other kind of marketing spin, those are going to be big, enduring, fast growth themes. And so some of the semiconductor companies that I like, like uh, Broadcom and Micron and NVIDIA and Qualcomm, you're absolutely right, John, they play into that theme. All right. Well, we will leave it there for now. Some big stable names uh, across a bunch of different sectors uh, to think about and rely on. Bob Pavlik and Paul Meeks. Now we've got a news alert out of the SEC. Bob Pisani joins us with the story. Bob. Hello, John. Uh, Foreign public companies that are listed in the United States may be delisted if their auditors do not comply with requests for information from U.S. regulators. Today, the SEC has adopted amendments to finalize rules to implement an act called the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. Now, this law was passed in 2020 after Chinese regulators repeatedly denied requests from U.S. regulators that oversee the audit of public companies to inspect the audits of Chinese companies that are listed and trade here in the United States. In 2020, Chinese firm Luckin Coffee fired its CEO and its COO for accounting fraud. That increased calls for action here in the U.S. The law permits the SEC to ban companies from trading and be delisted from exchanges if the PCAOB, that's the regulator, is not able to audit requested reports for three consecutive years. It also requires companies to declare whether they are owned or controlled by any foreign government. Now, the rules adopted today establish a framework for the law's implementation. The finalized rules will allow investors to identify foreign companies that are listed in the U.S. that are not allowing the U.S. regulators to inspect their audits. Here's the bottom line. This is a very tough situation. Investors say it's the Chinese regulators who are preventing the U.S. regulators from inspecting the audits, not the companies. The issue, unfortunately, has become very politicized. These companies are all audited by the big four accounting firms, but under Chinese law, regulators are not allowing those audits to be sent to the U.S. regulators. So what you have here, essentially, guys, is Chinese law clashing with U.S. law. And a lot of people feel this needs to be dealt with above the regulator level, above the SEC level and the Chinese uh, regulator level, perhaps at the trade representative level. And of course, the people who lose here, guys, are U.S. investors. Some of these companies have been here for 20 years uh, or more are now under some kind of uh, potential regulatory pressure in the U.S. So, Bob, what's the practical impact of that? Does that change the risk profile? Uh, Yes. Investing in some of these stocks, are are we seeing investors unloading these now? Or is there some sort of belief, trust, that this is going to get worked out at a different level? Well, this is is part of a whole issue about China, relations with China and investing in China and whether Chinese Uh, stocks are even investable under the rules uh, that the Chinese government has set up. It's become very politicized, unfortunately. Uh, And I think a lot of people are trying to figure out what they should be doing with their investments. Meantime, the Chinese aren't waiting. They are also now taking companies that list here, Chinese companies, and doing dual listings in Hong Kong just as a sort of backstop in case something really dire happens, like they get very aggressive here in the United States with this law. So there is some way for those companies 
to trade over in Hong Kong. And again, uh, I still feel uh, it's unlikely to be resolved at the SEC level. The Chinese are saying, this is Chinese law. The U.S. is saying no. And there's a clash of laws here that's got to be resolved, I think, on a higher level. Kind of a, an in-the-weeds question for you here, Bob, but I'll, I'll take a flyer on it. Maybe you will, too. I wonder how much risk there is for U.S. companies that either have investments in Chinese companies that could go public. Um, there's been quite a bit of that over the years as U.S. companies have tried to get uh, access to Chinese markets or even uh, you know, customers um, in China. We, we saw with Huawei some interesting uh, impacts from uh, you know, political issues, regulatory issues between the U.S. and China there. This, this is the answer is yes. This is why it's such a mess. The world is so intertwined and interconnected now that trying to like disentangle us and say, OK, we're going to have some a separate Chinese system and Chinese trading and Chinese stocks that operate there and U.S. stocks here. And we're going to make some uh, clear cut. It's very unrealistic. That's why this becomes a political question. It's more than just the regular saying, I want to access. I want to see your books. It's a higher level concerns here. There's a lot of other things besides auditing of books that are going on. This is a, a, right now just a very specific legal issue. The Chinese regulators say it's law, Chinese law. We cannot pass it on to U.S. regulators just because the U.S. regulators want to see the audits of our books. Well, how do you resolve that? Mm. And, and again, this gets into the resolving the whole thing on a higher political level. Maybe the trade representative level is probably where it's going to be resolved. Well, until then, investor beware. Bob Pisani, thank you. Okay. And now, as Dom mentioned, the yield curve is coming off its lowest level in nearly a year, now down about 20 basis points since Monday. Rick Santelli is at the CME with more on the move in rates. Rick? Yeah, John, it really is truly amazing. And you can really see the dynamics in place here. Let's look at a three-month chart of two-year notes, okay? Now, the, the high watermark post-COVID was around Thanksgiving when it closed at 64 basis points. It's now at 61, so we're only down three from the post-COVID high-yield close. Now go down the curve to tens. We're currently trading what? At 145, okay? As you see on that three-month chart, uh, right around the end of October, we're at 1.70. We're down 25 basis points from our post-COVID high. You see what I'm saying? That really exaggerates what's going on. And Dom was talking about tens to twos. Tens to twos had their high watermark around 130 basis points in early October. They're now at 83. They're down 40, flattened 47 basis points since the first week in October. Now look at 30s versus 5s. As you see there, it's currently at a nine-month flat at 55 basis points. And if you look at Boone's, the same dynamic as all the major sovereigns, flattening curves. Look at a three-month of 10-year Boone deals. They made their post-COVID high watermark uh, around the 12th, 12th of October at minus 08. They're now at minus 36. These are big distances, and it matters. And many are scratching their head. I mean, right now, we're at, what, 61 for two. So we're down, uh, excuse me, we're up six on the session. But as you look at 145 and tens, we're up five on the session. But for a while, it was nearly unchanged. So we're seeing a catch-up going on. But why are long data dragging? Why are they so far behind? Everybody's saying, well, slow growth. 
That's an easy answer for a very uncertain future regarding the variant. There's a lot more going on. Don't forget how many trillions of dollars the Fed has purchased. To think you're looking at the long end of getting a reality of where rates are? Nay, nay, I say. John, back to you. All right. Well, Rick, we'll be looking to you for more and better guesses over time on why this is happening. Appreciate it. For now, coming up, continuing jobless claims finally fell below 2 million for the first time since the early days of the pandemic. But applicants aren't feeling too hot about the labor market. We have the latest read on jobs from Recruiter.com next, plus a look at Enron's complex legacy. 20 years after declaring bankruptcy and setting off one of the biggest corporate scandals in history, The Exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Jobless claims are still hovering near a 52-year low, while continuing claims fell below 2 million for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, that happened last week. And while that might sound like a rosy picture, getting even more people back into the workforce to fill millions of openings is starting to get tougher, according to new data from Recruiter.com. Their sentiment index in November fell to levels not seen since December 2020. Joining me now to discuss what that means ahead of tomorrow's job report is Recruiter.com CEO Evan Sohn. Evan, this doesn't kind of at first blush make sense to me. Recruiters aren't feeling so hot, but they're, they're paying more. But higher pay isn't making prospective employees feel so hot. Like, why, why, are, why are we so picky and why are we so vexed? Yeah, look, thanks, John, for having me uh, having me back. And uh, are we surprised that it's not easy? Uh, <laughs> nothing's been easy this this entire time. You know, we started to use the expression from our talent effectiveness team called the great reevaluation, and we think companies are really and employees are really reevaluating when they want to go back, how they want to go back, how should they get paid, et cetera. And it's making the recruiter's job even more difficult. And that's why we saw recruiter sentiment down uh, out of five. Last month, it was at 3.9. It's down to 3.6. And the candidate sentiment went down from 3.5 last month to 3.3. It's hard. And, you know, the the companies are trying. Uh, We saw 37% of the recruiters reported an increase in salaries. Yet on the candidate side, that dropped as a priority. So compensation as a priority dropped from 30% to 25%. So let me explain what that means. That means that of the candidates' priorities, 75% of their priorities, their number one priority, was not about compensation. Then what was Work-life it? Work-life balance, 
work-life balance, remote work, uh, new experiences went up from 14% to 20%. You know what so this sounds to me like though, Evan? I mean, it, are we experiencing in the job market uh, an inflation of expectations? similar to the monetary right inflation that we're experiencing. I mean, it, does it seem like the market's so tight that candidates are kind of like, oh, well, I kind of don't want to work today, or I want to work in my slippers, or, you know, what, what do I want out of life as opposed to just money? Where if times were a little tougher and things were a little tighter, maybe those concerns wouldn't be the same? I, I completely agree with you. Uh, you know, the, the question no one's asking is, where's all this money going? How are people actually living? Uh, and maybe this is a big impact of the gig economy as people are using side hustles as their as their primary hustle, uh, as their primary uh, as their primary income. It's getting harder. And what we saw in the numbers is that more companies were using recruiters to go after the forty to thousand dollar salary positions. And if you watched our numbers back in August, about twenty two percent of the recruiters reported that those roles were in that salary range. Mm. That's now over thirty four percent. So all of a sudden now you're having recruiters, which ordinarily didn't recruit in those levels, are now you're, you're having companies say, hey, recruiters, get me those people. That's what's hard to do. But now, there's also, th there's, a, there's a problem recruiting recruiters, right? Oh my gosh. You know, uh, earlier this week, Wall Street Journal came up with an article that said the hardest thing to recruit for uh, is recruiters. You know, demand is surging for recruiters. Uh, now, being recruiter.com, that's a that's a good thing from our from our <laughs> perspective. Uh, but yes, the demand for recruiters is high, uh, and if, uh, some of the data that we're put out in our recruiter.com recruiter index um, really shows that the demand for recruiters and staffing professionals is really at, a, at really at an all time unprecedented high. Well, it's a great setup for tomorrow's jobs report. The market tends to move on it, and who knows uh, what it'll show. Evan Stone, thank you. From Thanks, Recruiter.com. Still ahead, COVID-related mortgage bailout programs are set to expire, potentially leaving more than a quarter of a million homeowners out in the cold. But could the red-hot housing market give them a way out? We'll explain. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org money tools. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome back to The Exchange. Uh, major indices near session highs right now, at least the Dow and the S&P, the NASDAQ a little off of that. Meanwhile, all 11 S&P sectors in the green right now, led by financials, which are on pace for their best day since January. Tech and healthcare are the laggards with healthcare up about a half a percent. Uh, here are some of the movers this hour. Airline stocks rebounding from yesterday's losses. Delta leading the way up 7%, while Southwest, Alaska Air, United, and American are all up about 5%. Casinos also seeing green today, led by Wynn, MGM, and Caesars, though they're still down around 5% for the week. 
On the other hand, not every name is rallying with the broader market today. Shares of ride-hailing and delivery company Grab Holdings sinking in its SPAC debut. And Kroger's leading the S&P after beating estimates on the top and bottom lines and raising full-year forecasts. Still, profits fell by about 23% from a year ago as higher cost pressures uh, are pressuring margins. The stock is having its best day in just over two years, so be sure to tune in to Closing Bell later today at 3 p.m. Eastern for an exclusive interview with Kroger's chairman and CEO, Rodney McMullen. Uh, now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Hey, Rahel. Hi, John, and here's what's happening at this hour. We begin in New York City, where Mayor Bill de Blasio is saying that we should assume there was community spread of the Omicron variant in New York. That's after a Minnesota resident tested positive with the new variant. Days after attending an anime convention in New York, New York City health officials calling for COVID testing for everyone who went to the anime New York City convention from November 19th through the 21st. The House of Representatives is expected to vote soon on a bill that will keep the federal government funded through mid-February. The bill passed a key procedural hurdle late in the morning. And on the news tonight, jurors at the Ghislaine Maxwell trial learning about how sexual predators lured their victims. And a look at all the other developments in the case tonight at 7 Eastern. And in Hungary, Santa's going underwater to set up a Christmas tree at an aquarium. Exotic fish and sharks swam by as they decorated the tree. And apparently, John, the tree needs to be checked every day because in previous years, the fish have knocked the tree over or snapped off decorations during the night. But who among us doesn't with the Christmas tree? Certainly those of us with cats are familiar with that challenge. Rahel, <laughs> thank you. Coming up, theater stocks up today, but down sharply in the past week over Omicron concerns. Could this dip be a buying opportunity? That is next. back. Another case of the COVID Omicron variant has been identified. Markets so far shrugging that off with all major indices in the green today after yesterday's late session sell-off. But there are concerns it could take Delta's title as the dominant variant. Is there more volatility ahead, therefore? Let's get to our team coverage. Meg Terrell has the latest on Omicron spread. Seema Modi is looking into how it could impact the travel sector's recovery as the U.S. tightens some restrictions. And Julia Borston is tracking the theater stocks, which have been beaten down recently. Meg, uh, let's start with you. Too early uh, to, to see what the public health threat is from this variant? Yeah, John, we're still gathering information. Um, we do know, though, with this newest case in the United States, it does look likely there is community transmission here. So the cases are not just travel linked. Uh, this latest case in Minnesota is a man who had traveled from New York City, had no international travel history. He was fully vaccinated and received a booster in early November. Uh, he was in the New York City area attending a conference at the Javits Center November 19th, 21st. And Minnesota health authorities say that he has one close contact who's tested positive but is still being sequenced, so we don't know if that's Omicron. Uh, importantly, he was vaccinated and boosted. He had mild symptoms, and they say that those have resolved. Uh, but here in New York City, of course, a contact tracing is going on. There are warnings about folks who attended that conference. Uh, New York City Health Commissioner Dave Choksi saying that this does mean there is community transmission in this area uh, and telling folks uh, that anybody who attended that conference should get 
tested immediately and taken additional precautions, including masking and social distancing. Meanwhile, around the world, 29 countries at least have identified cases of Omicron. Uh, in South Africa, cases are spiking into what is now their fourth wave. Uh, we just spoke with an epidemiologist there who said this is spreading faster than Delta. Uh, and a new information that just came out from health authorities, uh, they note what looks like a threefold increase in risk of reinfection compared with previous variants. So people who've had COVID are getting reinfected with the Omicron variant. Uh, but John, we still have a lot of question marks on the protection that the vaccines will provide, uh, especially against severe disease and, of course, the severity um, of this uh, variant. So far, it does not look different. Back over to you. And Meg, did I hear correctly yesterday uh, Dr. Fauci saying that it's going to be important to get data from these areas where there has been more spread to get a sense of exactly some of the things that you were alluding to how uh, much protection do the vaccines offer? Uh, how much protection do boosters uh, offer? And therefore, uh, what, what level of threat, different kind of threat is there? Though it seems like this idea of higher threat of reinfection would be a concern regardless. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly here in the United States. I mean, we've had such a huge Delta wave. And you think about those areas of the South. Florida looks like it's doing really well right now because it had so much Delta infection. Folks are not getting reinfected. If we get something like Omicron and it can reinfect people, that's not great news. Uh, but yes, Dr. Fauci was saying we should get epidemiological data from other countries to see about vaccine protections. We'll also get lab data probably toward the end of next week to see how well the vaccines are holding up. Uh, that's important. We will wait on that, Meg. Thank you. So uh, how will Omicron affect uh, these tightened restrictions? What will all that mean for the travel sector's recovery? Seema Modi joins me now with a look. Seema? And John, investors and travel executives have been really focused on the weekly data. So just to get a better understanding of how consumers are responding to this variant, the latest hotel occupancy data for this past week shows weakness in Europe and Asia. But the U.S. is actually holding up well at 53 percent. That is slightly lower than the prior week, but still a record for Thanksgiving weekend. Spoke to Diane Petras at the Travel Institute, which represents over 26,000 travel agents. She says they're hearing travelers showing more caution and taking a wait and see added towards booking international travel as countries tighten restrictions or impose more requirements. You have Israel and Japan, where nearly all foreigners are banned from entry. South Korea adding a 10-day quarantine requirement. And Germany imposing tougher rules on unvaccinated citizens. Uh, despite its reliance on foreign travel, Booking Holdings getting an upgrade today from UBS, a buy rating, and BTIG also citing home rental platforms like Airbnb, Expedia, which earns Verbo, as beneficiaries should this variant have a larger effect on travel sentiment. John. Yeah, and Seema, I'm wondering this time around, is it mostly the, the risk in the travel industry tilted toward international in particular? And does international mean something different? Certainly if you're in the U.S., big country, there's a lot of domestic travel to do. But in Europe, not necessarily so. Uh, are we going to see some of those effects play out again based on what we're seeing so far? Yeah, absolutely, John. In fact, if you look at the performance of these travel stocks, they all hit a 52-week high. More or less all of them hit a 52-week high around the time of November 8th when the U.S. finally lifted restrictions on fully vaccinated foreign travelers, right, on this expectation that we would start to see a resumption of cross-border travel. The forward bookings data at that point suggested we were going to see more travel, Europeans coming here and vice versa. But because of this variant, there are these new questions about whether there will be similar appetite to travel overseas, whether vaccinated or 
boosted or not? Is that experience going to Paris, to Germany, where some of the Christmas markets are closing because of this variant? Will my experience be different? Should I hold off till spring of next year? We don't have that answer yet, John, but that's what the market is waiting for. Yeah, yeah, and it probably means the national parks here are going to continue to be crowded as people can't or, or won't yes. travel overseas. Seema, thanks. And finally, despite today's rise, Omicron concerns have pressured theater stocks over the past week. Julia Borston joins me now with whether the dip presents a buying opportunity. Julia, Spider-Man tickets still selling, so maybe there's some silver lining here, at least for, for big hits? Yeah, well, those theater stocks are bouncing back today, John. But in the past week, concerns about Omicron have sent them plummeting. Take a look at the past five trading sessions. AMC Entertainment shares lost 22% over those five days. IMAX shares down 10% and Cinemark shares down 6%. Now, AMC, which has been, of course, a meme trade, it is still up around 1,250% year to date. But for the other two big theater stocks, some analysts see a buying opportunity because year to date, Cinemark is down over 10.5% and IMAX is down about 9%. Now, Alicia Reese of Wedbush, she has a buy rating on Cinemark and IMAX. She says she sees pent up demand for high quality content, particularly from younger people who don't feel as threatened by coronavirus. She points to evidence in those ticket pre-sales for Spider-Man No Way Home ahead of its opening in two weeks. Cinemark saying that film had the second biggest advanced ticket sales of all time, just behind Marvel's Avengers Endgame. And that movie had the biggest ever North American debut. So MKM's Eric Handler, he says he agrees that IMAX and Cinemark are oversold, but he does warn that there are still longer term questions about the pace of the box office recovery and whether studios return to doing more simultaneous releases. Now, this Christmas, in addition to that Spider-Man movie, there's West Side Story and Sing 2. Both of those will be exclusively in theaters. The Matrix Resurrections, that one will be simultaneously in theaters and on HBO Max. So we'll have to see what types of choices people make this holiday season, John. Yeah, Julia, at the risk of over-personalizing this story, I wonder if the availability of vaccines for younger people, for younger children, might be having a positive, outsized positive impact on the theater overall. Because, you know, a family might have some younger members and avoid the theaters altogether because there's one member who's unvaccinated, or at least who was, but who now is vaccinated. Maybe now the whole family goes back, and that's some of the impact we're seeing with these pre-sales. Any of the analysts say anything about that? Well, look, I think you're absolutely right that the vaccinations are going to have a huge impact. And I, you mentioned that your family had already bought tickets for Spider-Man. I will say that my family did as well, because by then, both of my kids will be fully vaccinated. So I think there is this sense that there is a light at the end of the tunnel for families with young kids who have just gotten vaccinated. But on the other side of that, we don't know what's going to come out yet about Omicron. And so far, there doesn't seem to be any negative Im impact from Omicron on ticket sales. It's just too soon to say. But two weeks from now, when Spider-Man opens in theaters, by then we'll know a lot more about Omicron and we'll see whether that does keep people at home. But the other thing to remember is like when movies like Sing 2 come out, that's really targeting a younger audience. That is a film that could really benefit from kids being vaccinated. And that is a movie that is not going to have simultaneous distribution. So a lot of these kids' movies have done simultaneous distribution because kids weren't vaccinated. Now we're going to start to see more of a push to get people back in theaters. This is going to be a big test what happens this holiday season, John. Yeah, it feels like we're living in a superhero disaster movie plot uh, some days. <laughs> Julia, thank you.
Now coming up, remember this? I'd say you were a carnival barker, except that wouldn't be fair to carnival barkers. A carny will at least tell you up front that he's running a shell game. It has been 20 years since Enron's collapse, and it is one of the biggest corporate scandals in history. But the company was also a pioneer behind innovations we take for granted today. A look at Enron's complex legacy is next. Welcome back. 20 years ago, Enron filed for bankruptcy. And while its collapse is infamous, the company was also a pioneer in certain technologies. Scott Cohn has a look at Enron's complex legacy. Mr. Jenkins, it must be evening there. Thank you. 20 years before Zooming was a thing, this Enron promotional video was touting video conferencing on the Internet and streaming video years before Netflix. Enron Communications is changing how the world communicates. We're changing the industry. We're changing. Scott Yeager was head of strategy for the division that became Enron Broadband. We spoke on Zoom. We were the only ones focused on broadband experiences, and broadband did include streaming media and did include the interactive dynamic you know, meetings like this. Before that, Enron created the modern day markets for natural gas and electricity, setting the course for how energy is priced to this day. Energy markets expert Ed Hurst, who worked with prosecutors to build their cases against company executives, concedes that Enron was a pioneer. Did Enron revolutionize trading for natural gas and electricity? Without question. Brought liquidity, brought benefits to consumers and producers. Which is why when Enron went bankrupt, throwing thousands out of work in a matter of hours, many mourned more than just a job. But Leslie Caldwell, the first head of the Justice Department's Enron Task Force, says none of that means Enron was not a fraud. The people who worked at Enron, there were tens of thousands of them, that many of them, probably almost all of them, were honest, hardworking people trying to do the right thing. But the problem was they had a cult culture at the top that was not was not that way. There was a lot, though, that also came out of that culture that still exists today. How should we look at that, the things that they did that that we're literally pioneering. I'm not saying that they didn't have any good ideas or do anything, but they, they, they tried to monetize things before they were really ready. Leslie Caldwell says that's when the company crossed the line into fraud. Nearly two dozen people either convicted or pleaded guilty in the massive prosecution that followed. John? Uh, Scott Cohn, such uh, an important story and look back, and I can't help but see the parallels with Theranos and the Elizabeth Holmes trial that you're covering now. And the idea, uh, just because you have a fraud, everything's not black and white. Sometimes there's some degree of innovation in there. That doesn't that show just how careful investors need to be about leadership? They do. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm covering the Theranos trial uh, up in San Jose, which is on a break right now. Uh, and I covered the Enron trials here in Houston. And that's the Enron, old Enron building behind me. There are differences. There are a lot of, Enron was an, was an established company. Uh, it was a public company where Theranos was still a startup, uh, possibly aiming to go public at some point. Uh, there was a little more meat on the bone, if only because Enron had been around for longer uh, and, and was in, in these different areas. Um, but yeah, people have to look behind the hype and companies also have to look behind the hype and make sure that they are presenting the clearest possible picture of what they're doing. And we appreciate that you're always looking behind the hype. Scott Cohn, thank you.
Up next, shares of search company Elastic sinking despite stronger than expected results. CEO Shai Bannon is going to weigh in on those results and the future of cloud computing in an exclusive interview. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. Cloud computing company Elastic falling, uh, I think, just over 17% so far today, despite reporting a revenue beat and smaller than expected loss. The $11 billion company counts Uber and Adobe as a couple of clients, provides search functionality and cyber defense in the cloud. It's been a bumpy ride for the stock, down nearly 21% this year. Joining me now in an exchange exclusive is Shai Bannon, uh, the CEO and co-founder. Shai, I, I look at these results, look good. Uh, put them up against, say, C3 AI, another uh, company that's relatively new to the markets and, and uh, kind of has been caught up in how the market feels about growth. What do you make of the market action up against these results that you just turned in? Uh, well, Joan, thank you for having me today. Um, I'll just say that uh, last time we spoke was when we IPO'd, and I believe that since then we delivered a lot of value to our community of uh, users, customers, and shareholders. As you say, the market is volatile, especially over the last few weeks, uh, but we remain very, very confident about the robustness of our opportunity as we look ahead. Um, if you think about it, companies become more and more digital and move online and move to the cloud. And they are generating an ever-increasing amount of data as a result of it. We are the leader in providing search experiences across any type of data, from adding a search box to your website, to monitoring your cloud infrastructure, uh, to protecting and preventing cyber threats. And as you said, we reported a very strong quarter. 42% year-over-year revenue growth, 84% within it is our cloud revenue growth, and north of 17,000 customers. Um, as I look ahead, I think our opportunity is robust and we are only getting started. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, I mean, it's important, I think, to zoom out and maybe look at a two-year chart uh, as well here uh, be because there has been upward movement overall, even though over the past few months, you know, year plus, it's been quite volatile. But I wonder for a company like Elastic, uh, how much do these fluctuations in the stock price uh, affect your ability to function, if at all. I mean, sometimes you got to think about uh, employee compensation, how much of that is happening with stock, uh, with a young company, recruiting, you know, are potential employees looking at the stock price? How are you handling that piece of it? Well, one of the things that I'm very proud about is the culture of Elastic and the amount of innovation that every single employee of Elastic delivers on a daily basis. It's one of our strongest traits. And we know that we need to look at the opportunity that we have ahead of us over the long term versus on a daily basis or a monthly basis. We're building a company for the long term. We're innovating towards the long term. The secular trends that we're supporting, the ability to find, to help people find what they're looking for over any type of data, they're still you know, relevant as they, are, as they were 10 years ago, and they're going to be very relevant as data volumes explode over the next 10 years. Our employees and customers know that we're building a company towards the long term and, and you know, we're very happy about it. Mm. If you think even just last quarter, that was the strongest quarter that we had with adding our employees. Taking aside our acquisitions, right. we added 280 employees, which is the highest ever. Now, uh, I was talking earlier today with Frank Slootman, the CEO of Snowflake, also reported earnings Stock went the other way. It's, it's up um, about 12.5%. But one of the things that he talked about 
was large deal sizes and just the appetite for transformative technology. What can you tell us about the size of the deals that you're making as you grow and turn in these results and uh, the appetite that's fueling it? We're definitely seeing an increase in the amount of large deals that we have. Uh, our company is geared towards what, what is called a bottom-up adoption. We start with developers and practitioners and go up within the enterprises. Uh, just this quarter, we reported a significant increase in our $1 million and above number of customers that accelerated over the last two quarters versus historical numbers. Uh, so we're definitely seeing that it's driven by the move to the cloud. By the way, when companies move to the cloud, they move to multiple clouds. It's driven by the increase of the amounts of data. And our growth is correlated directly to the ability to find insights within that data. Mm. All right, Shai Bannon, CEO and co-founder of Elastic. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. Now still ahead, the COVID mortgage bailout program is ending. That could heat up the winter housing market. That's next. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. The pandemic mortgage bailout program is ending. And while that means foreclosures for some, it could in a way be a silver lining for others. Diana Olick joins me now with that story. Diana. Well, John, nearly 8 million borrowers went into a COVID mortgage relief program, but just over half are now current again, according to Black Knight. Still, there are about 264,000 homeowners who expired from their forbearance terms and are now delinquent and 38,000 more already in active foreclosure. The strange twist here is that unlike during the subprime mortgage crash, these borrowers have substantial equity in their homes thanks to soaring home prices during the pandemic. Close to three quarters of the borrowers in foreclosure have more than 20 percent equity and just over a quarter of them have more than 50 percent equity. That's according to RealtyTrack. And that's those in foreclosure. But the shares are likely similar for those 264,000 who are expired and now delinquent but haven't yet reached foreclosure. So in total, what does that mean? It could be 300,000 likely lower-priced homes coming onto the market over the next six months. The question is whether the homeowners will decide to sell or wait out the foreclosure process. The current housing shortage is so bad, some estimate we may need more than a million homes just to meet the current demand. John? Huh, Diana, that makes me wonder, might this process take longer than expected? Because so many of these homeowners do have equity, might they have more options uh, and so might the, the, the market impact not, not hit as immediately? Well, they have equity in their homes, but if they can't pay their mortgages, then they're going to have to do something. The banks aren't just going to let them sit there and not make payments. The issue is, though, do they sell immediately or do they wait for foreclosure? I would have thought people would have just sold and taken the profits and gone on. But what some in the market are telling me is that these folks have nowhere to go. That is, the rental market is so expensive and they obviously can't buy another house. So they are just sitting and waiting because at least they can wait this out and not have to make a monthly payment. So it could take longer, John. And so then what's your take on the overall impact on the housing market? Well, these homes will eventually go for sale. And the question is, do they get bought by owner occupants who want to live there or do they get bought by investors and turned into rentals? What we know now is that this market is incredibly lean. We need more homes for sale. You're talking about more than a quarter of a million. Yes, we need about a million and the builders are ramping up. But a quarter of a million is not too shabby when you talk about getting more homes onto the market. Again, do they go to homeowners or to investors? Yeah, especially. We'll find out. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, given that inventories have been so thin. Uh, Diana, thank you. Uh, as we head toward power lunch, taking a look at the major indices, just about at session highs now. And with that, that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.